Amen. I will say that I just want to take a moment and celebrate the fact that we have a great sound person. Not because they made Mike sound good. Mike did a great job. I love that song, and I, I catch myself sitting over there singing the words to it, and then I realize, oh, wait, my mic's on. But the sound guy knows what he's doing. He had me turned off so you weren't hearing a duet. So great job. I appreciate that. It is great to have everybody with us this morning as we celebrate God's presence, and truly His presence is here as we have already spent time fellowshipping and worshiping His name. We're told that we're two or three gathering His name, that He will be there. We're told that He inhabits the praises of His people, and that's exactly why we know He is here today. I do want to challenge each of us today as we spend time looking at uh, the Scripture. I'm going to tell you already, you can turn in your Bibles, give you a head start. We'll be in Luke chapter 8. Jonathan read a couple verses from it earlier, but uh, just in preparation, we're going to look a, a much longer passage than just the two verses that he read. Um, let me begin with a question. Have you ever done something that you immediately regretted? You realize that, ooh, that, that wasn't a good choice. Uh, it's hard to take it back once that's happened. Have you ever done something that you'd be mortified if others knew about it? Have you ever tried to portray yourself as one thing, knowing that behind the scenes, you would be ashamed of who you are if other people knew who you are? Unfortunately, that would be most of us. It's as if we get up in the morning and immediately put on our disguise, hoping that nobody figures out who we really are. I confess that at times that has even been me as the pastor. In John 1, verse 47, Jesus is introduced to a man named Nathaniel. Now, it's not as if Jesus didn't know who Nathaniel was. In fact, as Jesus walks up to him, Jesus commends him. He says, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, very few of us could relate to Nathaniel. He was unique. According to Jesus' testimony, in him there was absolutely no deceit, no deception whatsoever. What you see is what you get. What that suggests to me is that he had absolutely nothing to hide. He had no reason to tell those little white lies, no reason to exaggerate or to manipulate. We call all those things bearing false witness, which actually the Ten Commandments addresses. Well, today's message isn't about bearing false witness, telling the truth or a lie. I begin here to point out that we have all sinned in some way. Maybe for you it's that little white lie. Maybe for you it's something more serious like adultery or I don't know what else it might be. I would even say that although Nathaniel is said to have had no deceit in him, he too struggled with some type of sin. The reason I can say that confidently, Proverbs 20, verse 9, poses a question. It says, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean without sin? We know the answer. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is without sin. And regardless of the sin, we have all needed redemption and restoration. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have a God who specializes in redemption and restoration? As I continue in our series entitled Your, Sto Your Story, 
I want to look at a few biblical examples of God's redemption and restoration this morning. As we do, I want to address one simple question regarding not only this story as in the story in the scripture, but your story as well. What do we do with the restoration that God has provided? And how can our past now become used for good in the future? Let's begin today in a somewhat familiar passage. I mentioned we're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to begin looking in verse 26. And I want to set the stage for you just a little bit. Jesus has been ministering to huge crowds. It has become constant that wherever Jesus goes, there are people that are there. Well, as the crowds grow, it becomes more and more difficult for Jesus to travel, certainly for him to travel quickly. Everywhere he goes, someone stops him. Someone wants to talk to him. Somebody wants him to help them. Maybe there's an individual with a physical ailment, and they need Jesus to stop and touch them. I think of Jesus walking the crowded streets, and a woman comes up, and she just wants to touch the hem of his garment, knowing that there is enough power in him that she could be healed. That was a common thing everywhere he went. I'm hooked. Sorry. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It gets so crowded that I'm sure if he used a microphone, it would have been hooked at some point. Anyways, because of that, there were very few modes of transportation where he could move quickly. One exception would be by boat. Well, just before our passage today, Jesus is traveling by boat. It's in the middle of the night, and as they're traveling by boat, Jesus is resting. He's basically down inside the boat asleep, and all of his fishermen disciples are just kind of manning the ship. Everything's good until all of a sudden a vicious storm comes up. And as this storm comes up, now remember they're fishermen. They know what to do. They've been out on the water plenty of times. They're not worried. Well, actually they are, because this storm is more significant than probably anything they've seen up until this point. They end up in a panic, and they're fearful for their lives, and they run down, and they wake up Jesus in the bottom of the boat. Lord, save us. He wasn't a fisherman. Why were they asking him? They were asking him because they had seen him do so many miraculous, powerful things already. And Jesus responds with those three words that are very familiar to us, but so simple. Peace, be still. And in that moment, the water around them becomes like a sheet of glass. Basically, it's as if there had never been any storm. It is calm. It is peaceful. It is beautiful. Can you imagine the thoughts that his disciples must have had as they continued traveling that night? You see, the journey wasn't over. Jesus probably went back into the bottom of the boat, and he probably went back to sleep. They had to be in awe of his greatness, his power. They had to think to themselves, what could be next? I wonder if maybe they were a little bit ashamed of their lack of faith. You know, one of the questions Jesus asked them that night, how much longer do I need to be with you, O ye of little faith? Well, the next for them is what's going to happen in our passage today. Look at our passage beginning in verse 26. It says this, They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. 
When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice is that life is generally going to be pretty messy. Let me explain what I mean by looking at where this story actually takes place. We're told that he's in a region known as the Gerasenes, but this is not some standalone city. The Gerasenes was basically a suburb to another region known as the Decapolis, This was a major Gentile city. Literally, the name of the city reveals that it was 10 cities that combined to form one great city. But Jews and Gentiles had little to do with each other, and this was a Gentile city. Jews would have considered any association with the Gentiles to be defiling or unclean because we're dealing with an unclean people group. We're already talking about messy. So as the disciples disembark from their boat, things are automatically messy. To make things worse, they are addressed by a man with unclean spirits. You've got unclean people. You've got an unclean spirit. This man lives among the tombs where unclean dead bodies would be. And it is revealed later in this passage that a herd of pigs is grazing nearby, an unclean animal that was considered unfit for Jews. Do you see a theme here? It has become very messy very quickly as everything seems to be unclean. But things are about to get even messier. Somebody owns these pigs that are just grazing and all of a sudden are running off into the water. Now, I know that the night before had to be really rough on the disciples, and they probably were glad to touch ground, and they probably even kissed the ground when they got there because they thought, we're glad to finally be off the water. We're safe. Maybe they thought to themselves, as things continued to get messy, I wish we'd have stayed on that boat. Let me suggest to you that life is messy. As long as we live in a fallen world, life will always be messy. Sometimes it's the sin or the imperfections of others. Sometimes it is our sin and our own imperfection. Understand that there are no heroes among those who are watching Jesus on this particular day. The disciples have already revealed that they are filled with fear. Even though they've seen him do remarkable things, they are filled with fear and doubt as they address that storm the night before. 
And then you've got this guy who is filled with demons. Nobody would refer to him as a hero. Every individual who is present with Jesus that day is messy. Now, their messy may look different, but it's all messy. The demon-possessed man is deep in his messy, but the disciples were too. Consider the fact that one of the disciples was actually a tax collector, which was considered to be the worst of professions among all of the people of Jesus' day. They're not really liked in today's culture either. But in this particular culture that we're reading about, they were dishonest. They were people who would rob you simply for the sake of robbing you. Even if they were family, it didn't matter. They ripped people off constantly. That's why tax collectors, most of them were fairly wealthy, because they stole everybody else's money. So even the disciples were messy. But here they are, and they still appear messy. They may look a little more polished in their mess than this guy who's filled with demons, but they're still messy. I know there was a day that all of us here were lost in our sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. God redeemed us. He saved us. He forgave us of our sins. Often we look back on those times when we were first seeking Christ, needing Him, and calling out and receiving that forgiveness, and maybe we look at the way we were almost with a sense of disgust and disappointment. I can't believe I was ever that bad, but we were. Do you think that you have stopped being messy? No, actually, some of the messiest people I come across are people in the church. So often what we do is we exchange baggage, we exchange some of the things that we're dealing with. Maybe we're more polished and we look a little bit better than what we did back then, but so often we're still carrying baggage, we just change the baggage, that's all. Let me ask you, how messy is your life? Are you like the man in the tombs? who is still filthy and unpolished and still dealing with incredible baggage that seems almost magnified above everybody else's baggage? Or are you more like the disciples? Maybe you're like Nathaniel. He's one of the disciples. Maybe you're like Nathaniel, walking with incredible integrity, yet lacking faith in the midst of a storm. You know, that's still messy. Maybe you're just walking around in a messy world and you're seeking the Lord with everything, but the messiness of our world continues to affect us and impact what we see and do. The point is that we are no better than those who are around us. We may look at their messy and think at least we're not like them, but the truth is that messy is still messy. The second thing that I would challenge you with here as I'm specifically dealing with this messy what kind of messy has God already delivered you from? I told you the disciples had some pretty messy lives previously. I gave you the example of the one he was a tax collector. Did you know that God has always been about transforming the lives of broken, messy people, taking people from messy to holy? Consider the story of Rahab. 
She was a prostitute from the city of Jericho, the first city to be conquered when the Israelites would go into Canaan. She was probably hated by most women among her own people, and certainly she was less than noble among a holy people. Yet God would redeem her, and he would give her incredible value and purpose. The significance of God's redemption in her life is most clearly revealed in the genealogy of Christ, as she is included in the family line of Christ himself. Did you catch that? This woman who was broken and messy and filthy with all kinds of baggage that was incredibly ugly is brought into the family of God. She becomes not only a member of the community, but she actually is placed in the family line of Christ. If God could take a woman who was like that and redeem her, and give her such incredible purpose and value, what could God do through you? If God could restore her, my assumption is no one in here has ever been a prostitute. If God could restore her to something so beautiful and valuable, then what could God do through you? Or consider the story of Gideon. When we're introduced to him, he is threshing wheat in hiding for fear of Midianite raiders. See, they would come in and they would see him threshing the wheat and they would steal from him and they would take everything that he had. All the work that he had done would be for naught. Yet in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, God greets him with these words, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Wait, did you just hear that? This guy is in hiding because he's afraid that the Midianites are going to come in and they're going to steal from him. So he's hiding from them. Yet when God addresses him, he refers to him as mighty warrior. Let me just say that there was nothing mighty about what he had done prior to this. And nobody else would have considered him to be a warrior. Remember, He's in hiding, yet God would anoint him to use him to deliver the Israelites from bondage. He would be that mighty warrior. God took a scared young man and turned him into something amazing. You see, God takes the messy, and he takes the broken, and he takes the imperfect, and he takes those who have no hope, and he transforms us into something different. Well, God can do the same thing with you. He can take your messy and he can make you whole. In fact, look at what happens with this man from the Gerasenes, the one we've already been reading about in Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 34 to 36. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. 
It's interesting, at the beginning of that, in verse 34, it says, those who had been tending, those who had been watching, they were just innocent bystanders. As they are watching, they see something that is spectacular. And they go into town to tell everybody else about it. Now, it sounds like they're just really excited, but maybe they weren't so excited. The ones who had been tending the pigs would be held accountable for these pigs that had just died. Maybe they weren't going to tell with excitement, but rather, i got to blame somebody because I don't want to be held accountable for it. So they go into town and they tell others, you're not going to believe what just took place. This guy comes in, he gets off the boat, and when he gets off the boat, there's this demon-possessed man. We all know him. Pick a name. We're going to call him George. There's no Georges in here, right? Everybody knows George. He's got all these demons. All of a sudden, Jesus took those demons out of that man, threw them into those pigs. That's why we don't have the pigs anymore. Sounds really nice. The other side to their report, it tells us that that man, the one with all the baggage, the one with all the messiness, all the brokenness, it says he was cured. The story is told a little bit different in the Gospels. Each Gospel tells it. And I like one of the phrases that is used in Mark chapter 5. Verse 15 says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. They knew who this guy was. Every individual, as they come out to see what has taken place, they knew who this guy was. He was one of them. Some of them were actually afraid of him before this event took place. Some of them felt sorry for him, but none of them wanted him anywhere close to them. He was dangerous. He was obnoxious. Why do you think he didn't live with them? They said they had tried chaining him up previously. They had tried putting guards around him to keep him from not only hurting himself, but hurting other people. And instead, they've basically run this guy out of town. He's living in tombs. They likely saw him as crazy without any hope. Yet here he is sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Know that this guy is still very much a work in progress. But the change that has taken place is dramatic. Now, maybe you've already experienced this transforming, powerful work of Christ in your own life. And my hope is that everyone in here has Or maybe you wonder if God could really do that for you. You have a lot of messiness in your life. No matter how messy your life has become, God can still set you free. My guess is when that guy woke up that morning, he thought that day was going to be just like every other day. And then Jesus showed up. And suddenly, that day became brand new for him. God doesn't just want to take a few 
things from you and make things better in your life. He wants to transform everything about you. He didn't just take this guy and make him better behave. Sure, that's the thing that everyone notices. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is clothed. He is in his right mind. They notice the behavioral stuff, but there is something different in this man. He is not the same person anymore. God has changed everything about him, and he can do the same for you and for me. Now, I'd love to tell you that everyone will rejoice over such transformations, but that is not always the truth. We're told in verse 37 that all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. Notice the difference between the different people in this story. The disciples would rejoice over the transforming work of Christ because they have already experienced it themselves. They were people with no hope. They were people with poor moral choices. They were people who knew that they needed a Savior. They had been following Jesus around. They had found their Savior. And as a result, they would rejoice over this event to see this man who they saw the before too. This man who was filled with evil spirits, to see him delivered would have been a reason to celebrate. Then you take this guy, there's no question, this guy, this George, he was excited that day. Can you imagine being so defeated by an evil spirit, knowing that there is nothing you can do to change that situation? And it wasn't like this just started. This had been going on for years. He didn't just decide the day before, I think I'll go live out in the tombs. This guy probably had been living there for a long time. Can you imagine the relief that he felt that day, knowing what Jesus Christ had just done for him? Man, incredible peace, incredible joy. But then you have all of these neighbors. The neighbors want Jesus to leave. Why? It would seem to me that this man's messiness was nothing more than an inconvenience to them. If he's better, great. But I kind of like things the way they were. I'm sure the owner of the pigs wasn't real happy about Jesus' presence that day. I don't want to see a whole lot change. See, there are those in our world that are okay with just leaving things the way they are. But for those of us who have received his redemption and restoration, there is incredible joy in knowing that God's still given it. For those of us who have reached that point of desperation where we knew we needed God to move because there was no other hope, for us, this means something, and there is a reason for us to celebrate. Verse 38 and 39, I had Jonathan read earlier, says, The man from whom the demons had gone out, begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let me first say, I understand why this guy wanted to go with Jesus. 
First of all, Jesus has just done something great for him. I understand his desire to go with Jesus. The second side of this is the people that know him the best, those who have been his neighbors, probably even some family members. They're not celebrating and rejoicing. And let me go with people that are. I understand why this man would have wanted to go with Jesus. In the passage from the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 that I read earlier, it echoes this, telling us that he went into the Decapolis. Now, this is Jesus' words to him. Remember, Jesus tells him, go return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done. Mark 5 says that he went into the Decapolis and told everyone what Jesus had done for him. That sounds like a great ending to the story, doesn't it? He was able to go back to his family and to his friends. Imagine how happy, say, his parents would be when they get that knock on the door and George is standing on the other side in his right mind, clothed, and he's able to talk and interact with them. They thought their son was basically dead. Maybe they don't even recognize him. I, don't, I picture him almost like Albert Einstein with his hair going all different directions and suddenly his hair is perfectly combed and he just looks polished and man, he's a completely different person. Who are you? You look like my son, but you're not because my son's crazy. He's filled with demons. Imagine how happy his parents would be. Imagine the questions. How is this possible? To them, their son was dead, yet here he is alive again. But the story really isn't over. You see, I've referenced Mark 5 a couple times, and there's a reason for it. Mark chapter 5, at the end of the story, we have Jesus being run out of town, and this guy goes back to the Decapolis, and he's telling everybody he can about Jesus. This is what happened. This is what took place, and this is the only hope anybody has. See, this is my story. I was filled with demons. I was stuck, and there was no hope. I was broken. I was messy. Yet Jesus came in, and he redeemed me, and he made me whole. That's Mark chapter 5. Let's fast forward to Mark chapter 7. Jesus returns to the region. Seems a bit foolish since they've just been run out of town the last time. Remember, they begged and pleaded with Jesus to leave them. But Jesus returns, and this time the greeting is drastically different. As he approaches, people start to bring out their sick, their lame, and even their demon-possessed. Why? Why such a change? Because they had heard the story from one who had been set free. They knew this man had been messy. Yet today he was clean. They likely thought that if God could deliver him, then what could God do in me? I want to challenge you today to tell your story. There is a world of people who desperately need to know that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe they won't immediately jump for joy 
and celebration over what you've experienced. Maybe they'll even want you to leave the Jesus stuff out of it. But eventually, when they reach their own point of desperation, they will see the freedom that you have, and they too will seek after it. I want to close with a story uh, from my time in Pennsylvania as I pastored up in the Philadelphia area. We had a young man who was at our church. Actually, he had grown up in the church, but truthfully, he had kind of wandered from it. Uh, He told me that from the age of 21 to the age of 35, he was either high or drunk the entire time. Uh, Brian was one of the funnest people you would ever hang out with. And at the age of 35, he reached a point of desperation, and he sought the Lord, and God reached in and completely transformed his life. Uh, Incredible story to watch it unfold, to see him go from point A to point B was just amazing. And I remember he had been, I guess at that point, he'd probably been clean for about six months, and... Uh, just a new creation, no question. It wasn't just being drug-free. This guy was filled with the Spirit of God, and God was moving. And I had him share his testimony with the church. And he wanted to invite all of his friends. He was a local kid, so he knew all of, I say a kid, he was 35, and he's actually, I think, the same age as me at that time, so he wasn't really a kid. Anyways, uh, he invited all of his old friends to come. And I'm going to tell you that that particular sanctuary, I think we could probably fit about 220 people in it. We had to have multiple services. And, and by the way, 220 would have, been stand, it would have felt like standing room only. That particular day, 300 people showed up for church because they wanted to hear his story. One of the guys who showed up was a guy named Robbie. Uh, Robbie was his former drug dealer. Um, Brian heard nothing from Robbie afterwards. He sat, he listened, he watched, he did all of that. Six months later, he receives a phone call from Robbie. Robbie said, I've been watching you for the last year, and I wanted to see if what you experienced was real. He said, I believe that it is. How can I get the same thing that you have? Brian was able to share the gospel with Robbie. Robbie became an individual who was involved in the church. He was saved from a life of addiction. Robbie was redeemed just like Brian was. But it happened because Brian was not afraid to tell his story. He had a story to tell. So do you. My question is, will you share your story with those who desperately need it? Don't misunderstand. It's not just telling it. In Brian's case, we see that he lived it as well. Robbie could have responded the first time he heard his story, but he didn't. He wanted to see if it was real. Will you not only tell people about the redemption and restoration God has given, but will you also show them what it is to be a transformed child of God. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Maybe this morning, some of you have yet to receive the transformation that God has made available to you. I don't always do this, but I'm going to open up the altar this morning. 
Maybe you look at all the messiness in your life and you think, man, there's no way God could ever redeem me. Maybe you've got some things that are so disgusting and impure in your life, you would be so ashamed if other people knew what's been going on in your life. I want you to know today that God is a transforming God. And he can take the messy and he can make you whole. Maybe today you would say, Pastor, I have discovered what it is to be a child of God. But I don't think I've ever been able to tell anybody about it. And I need God to empower me to show it and to say it. There are two invitations there. One, if, if you would like to receive the transformation Christ has offered, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to open up the altar this morning. I'm going to ask everyone to stand if you would. Bow, keep your heads bowed. If you'd stand up. If you feel led to come forward this morning because you need to receive forgiveness of sins, need to be that new creation, I invite you. If you need to be more faithful, more well-prepared to share your story, I invite you to come. We're going to have a time of prayer to follow. I'll just wait just a moment. Actually, as we wait, I want us to sing that song, Amazing Grace, one last time. If you feel led as we sing, please come forward. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for your grace. Lord, in all of our messiness, all the things that we have allowed to exist, Lord, all of us have needed your redemption and your restoration. You are our only hope. Father, I pray today that if there be any here who still needs you to move in a miraculous way, bringing forgiveness of sins and healing within our own hearts, I pray that at this moment you would bring it. I thank you for the fact that you have become so faithful and so good to change people's lives. I think of Gideon, I think of Rahab, I think of Jacob, I think of David, and the list could go on and on. I think of the Apostle Paul, individuals who they were broken and messy people, yet you reached in and you redeemed them. Lord, may people be able to look at our lives and declare the same thing. Other people look at us and say, I remember when, but they are not the same people that they were back then. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly be transformed, to display your character and display your redeeming power. I pray for those that we come in contact with, that you would enable us to tell our story, to be able to share with them not only this is who I was, but to be able to explain, this is why I am who I am today. For we have a God who still redeems, still forgives. He 
You tell us in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that that would be our testimony, that we reached out to you, we confessed our sin, and you forgave us, and you made us whole, you made us new. Lord, I pray that you would use our testimony so that others' lives might be changed. We give you praise for all that you do in us, all that you've already done in us. And we look forward to even greater days ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is a blessing to have each of you with us this morning. If you do not regularly attend here, we'd love to see you come back again. If you do, come back again anyway. So thank you for being with us. Go in peace.